Well, hi everyone. Uh, this is the last message in our series here at New Denver Church called We Believe Why We Say the Apostles' Creed. And this is one of those uh, supplemental podcasts we've talked about. Um, so this is part 3B, meaning um, we're just sort of adding to some of the things we talked about in the last message. Uh, by the way, my name's Norton. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, I should say, if you happen to stumble on this podcast, but you haven't this specific episode, but you haven't listened to the previous ones in this uh, series, and especially if you missed the last one, part three, um, where another pastor, Stephen Redden, uh, talked about um, several important things related to the creed, uh, you need to listen to that first. Uh, Stephen just did a really good job at uh, succinctly and concisely um, unpacking this idea of why the creed, the Apostles' Creed in this case, is so important and how it helps us clarify what are the central tenets of the Christian faith and what are the things that are secondary. Um, and a phrase we use at New Denver that he mentioned a lot is, how can we major on the majors and minor on the minors? Um, so I'm basically going to talk about that a little bit more today, um, unpack some of the uh, very specific areas um, that we didn't get into in the last message. But as I said, you need to go back and listen to that one if, if you haven't yet, because that really sets everything up. Um, but the question that Stephen raised a little bit was, what are the minors then? <laughs> what are those secondary issues that shouldn't be central issues? And he gave a whole bunch of examples um, and I just want to tease out in, in this podcast um, why some of these are secondary issues, um, how they can still be important to us as followers of Jesus, and how a local church might navigate these uh, this tension between secondary issues and central issues. Um, now, there are a whole lot of these secondary issues. And so I thought it would be helpful, as, as I've thought about this a lot, um, to lump all of these uh, secondary issues or minors, if you will, into three categories. There's, there's really three different buckets, if you will, that they go into. And, and the lines between these categories are blurry, and so some maybe go into both two categories at once, or, you know, so these are not airtight categories. But they might just be three different buckets or ways of thinking about these secondary issues. And I want to I talk about that a little bit. Um, so here's the first one. The first category of those issues we have as Christians that should not be central but are secondary. And that would be what I would call debatable theological matters. Debatable theological matters. So there are all sorts of theological and doctrinal questions that come up when you become a Christian and you start reading the Bible about how God works and who we are and uh, the nature of faith and all sorts of things. And there's um, some issues or matters uh, that become really important to certain groups of people, but they're still secondary issues. And they're actually quite debatable. Um, so a few examples are uh, the end times, right? There's all kinds of debates about the end times, 
Jesus in the New Testament makes very clear that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything right again. But how he's going to do that uh, is not clear. When he will do that is not clear. What it's going to look like when he does that is not always clear. In fact, Jesus, one of the only things he does make clear is don't try to figure out exactly when and how this is going to happen. He says that numerous times. And yet, there's something about us that still has all kinds of discussions and debates about when is Jesus going to come back. And of course, there's the book of Revelation, and there's other passages in the New Testament that have all of these apocalyptic um, imagery and passages, and, and and we can begin to dig into them and start trying to figure out, like, what are the signs that Christians should be looking for, and are we living in the end times, and what will happen, and 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 all there's all sorts of debates about the end times, but this is one of those things that falls into debatable theological matters. Some aspects of these debates are important, others not so much, and genuine Christians disagree on a lot of things here. Uh, Another area that would be called a debatable theological matter is the debate between um, Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, Some of you might be very familiar with those two terms, others uh, might be a little scared by those two terms. Basically, there is this, this long debate um, or discussion, if you will. Debate might be the wrong word, but discussion about how God works in the world. And it's very complex. And um, on one side of the discussion are those who uh, emphasize that God is going to do what God is going to do. <laughs> He's God. And sometimes he makes decisions and he doesn't ask for our input on those decisions, and he just does things. And uh, we just have to accept that. And so he's sovereign. A lot of talk about the sovereignty of God. Um, he's omnipowerful, um, omnipotent. There's a, talk, a lot of talk about that. And then when it comes to the issue of salvation, those who become followers of Jesus and will spend eternity with him and those who do not, there's the issue of predestination and some who say God has predestined or elected certain people to become followers of him and spend eternity with him and others he has not. And um, and this has been discussed for so long and, and one of the most important figures in sort of explaining this view is John Calvin. So it's it's often called Calvinism. But then on the other hand, there are others who emphasize uh, human free will and uh, how much the Bible describes that God wants to not just make unilateral decisions, but that he works with humans to bring about his will in the world and that uh, he wants our input and that we are free to choose and decide and, uh, and that we have great responsibility. And, uh, and, and in fact, there's even uh, stories about this. There's a story one time in the Old Testament where God um, is so fed up with Israel, God decides he's going to give up on Israel and he's just going to go find another people to call his special people. And Moses comes to God and says, no, don't do that, God. Remember, you said you were going to stick with us. You loved us. What are people going to say about us if you give up on us now? And Moses changes God's mind. 
God finally gives in. He's like, okay, Moses, you're right. I've changed my mind. I'm not going to give up on Israel. You've got another chance, right? And it's very clear. Humans have a significant role in what God is up to in the world. And so this sort of perspective that that humans are free to choose and that humans are responsible. Um, uh, there was a guy who sort of uh, opposed Calvinism, and his name was Jacob Arminius. And so uh, this larger perspective is sometimes referred to as Arminianism. So these two terms, Calvinism and Arminianism, they can be limiting, and, and there's a lot more at stake than what these two guys said. But those are the phrases. And there are intense debates about this. And there are uh, very specific church traditions that stand on one side or the other. Most Anglicans tend to be Calvinists. Uh, those in the Reformed tradition, which is comes out of the, the sort of tradition of John Calvin. Um, so if you grew up in the Reformed Church of America or the Christian Reformed Church, um, which also led to the Presbyterian tradition, if you grew up in any sort of Presbyterian church, uh, the idea that God is sovereign and predestination and election, all those things, that's just a part of all of the language that's used there. So those traditions stand firmly on that side, um, whereas Wesleyans uh, and Methodists, uh, who were started by John Wesley, um, and the Nazarene tradition and other uh, Protestant traditions that grew significantly, especially in America, are on the other side. They're sort of part of the Arminian tradition of the debate. And, and, uh, and if you go to one of these churches, um, you would think this is a central matter of faith. It's often part of the statement of faith in these traditions. That this is the way that God works, or this is the way humans have freedom. Um, and yet, I would put this, and I think Christians... For, for most of church history, would put this in one of those debatable theological matters. The fact that we have massive traditions on different sides of the fence shows this is a debatable theological matter. Um, another one uh, that became big uh, in the last 30 years is, um, is the inerrancy of the Bible. Um, if you didn't grow up in church world, you maybe you've never even heard of this term, but there were some churches and denominations that, that had significant debates over this word inerrancy. Inerrancy means something does not have error. Uh, if, if, you, if you're in school and you ace a test and you get 100 on it, uh, your test score and your, your work was inerrant. You made zero errors. You were perfect, Right. And so um, it became common to begin to describe the Bible as being inerrant. There are no errors in the Bible. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that it speaks to that is false or untrue. Some people upheld this as being a really, really important theological understanding of the Bible and a theological doctrine. Um, of course, others came along and said, well, is that really true? Uh, because the Bible talks about sunrises and sunsets. And we know scientifically the sun doesn't rise, actually. The, the earth spins. <laughs> and uh, we begin to see the sun over the horizon, but it's not actually rising. 
The sun's not going anywhere. The sun is actually there. We're the ones spinning. So that's not, that, that kind of seems like an error, right? Uh, and, and there's other things in, in the Bible. There's metaphors and symbols that are used. And, and so then there's another word that sometimes people talk about, the infallibility of the Bible. And, and there were all sorts of debates over the last 30 or 40 years in certain uh, Christian denominations and circles about how to understand the Bible. And there were they got so intense that some people said, if you do not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, you're not even a Christian, right? And, and, and basically, this became a central matter when really it's a debatable theological matter. The Bible never uses the word inerrancy or infallibility or, or any of these modern categories that we like to, to use, and so, in fact, even at New Denver, we, we don't really use those terms. I, I, I don't know how helpful they are. We just talk about Scripture being the foundation. Uh, because the Scripture uses that metaphor. You, you build your, your house on a solid foundation, and so it sort of tends to use God's words and God's teaching in our lives. That's the metaphor it uses. Or maybe Scripture is our authority. And, and so there are helpful ways of talking about this. And this is not to say this is a silly debate. Or any of these debates are silly, are, are silly, right? There's a lot in the Bible about the end times. There's a lot about human responsibility and God's prerogative and, and God's sovereignty. There's a lot about the importance of the authority of, of the Bible. And so these can be important and helpful discussions to have. But sometimes our desire for conclusions airtight black and white conclusions and answers within these debatable theological matters can lead us to make them central when they're not really that central. I mean, I've learned over the years, as important as it is to talk about some of the end time stuff, um, as important as it is to talk about the way God works in the world, as important as it is to to think about whether the Bible is inerrant or not and all those kind of things, that, that these things are way less important to my actual daily relationship with God than I think. And they really don't have a significant role in my participation in His mission and His work in the world. And that I can sometimes take what is often an intellectual sort of grappling that can be important and I can move it to the center and make it so much bigger than it actually is. Because if the most important thing is my relationship with God and my identity being found in Him and, and participating in the work and the mission that He has for me and for us as a community of faith in the world, then let's make sure to keep the central things to that mission and to that identity central and all of those other things let's Let's continue to say those are secondary. Those are debatable theological matters. Here's kind of a silly illustration I thought of. Um, it's kind of like if you're dating somebody and you're trying to decide whether you should marry them or not, like they're the one for you and you want to spend the rest of your life with them, or, or perhaps you are married and you're continuing to relate to them. And, and, and in that whole process of dating them or considering to marry them or, or being in a, a relationship with somebody, there's a question 
that you're trying to get an answer to. And the question is, where were they born? And it would be like if you began to focus on this question, where was this person born? What city and hospital were they actually born in? And you begin to make that a central issue in your relationship. Now, it's an interesting question. It would be good. You would get to know a little more about them if you knew where they were born. It might shed a little light on their background. But at the end of the day, it's really not that central to your relationship with them. My wife was born on Glasgow Air Force Base in Glasgow, Montana. And that pretty much has almost no bearing on our relationship and our marriage today, right? If she was born in North Dakota, it wouldn't make any difference. But think about if I was consumed with knowing for certain exactly where my wife was born. And if I didn't know that, it would drive me crazy. And if, I, and if somebody else came along and said they think she was born somewhere else and, and, and that began to to unravel the relationship of that I have with my wife. I mean, think about how crazy that would be. You would you would try to get in my face and shake me and say, you're taking something that is, is not as important as you think and you're making it central and that's crazy, right? And that's what we sometimes do with these debatable theological matters. So that's one bucket of secondary issues, these debatable theological matters. Uh, Here's a second bucket that, that I would sort of unpack. And that would be important biblical truths. There are a lot of important biblical truths that we need to understand and live out in our lives that are not described in the Apostles' Creed, right? The, I mean, here's a really simple one. The Apostles' Creed doesn't say anything about prayer. <laughs> and I think every Christian would say, prayer is pretty important, right? Jesus taught us to pray. The whole book of Psalms is a book of prayer. Like prayer is just all throughout the Bible. Prayer is how we relate to God. So it's not that prayer is unimportant just because it's not in the Apostles' Creed. It's just because the Apostles' Creed is is trying to unpack those central tenets of Christian faith, not these important biblical truths that we maybe need to live out every single day. So there's a few others that are bigger. Um, Think about the important biblical truth of generosity. The idea that God is generous to us and we should reflect that generosity to others. And and we're going to reflect that in so many different ways. But that we should be a people who are generous. We're generous with our time. We're generous with our gifts. We're generous with our money. We should reflect that. I mean, generosity is a deep and significant biblical truth. Uh, Sexuality. There are so many deep, an important biblical truth around sexuality, around how God made us, around what it means to be a man or a woman, around the issue of gender, which is, is, is big and, and much discussed right now, around what healthy sexual relationships look like, what it means to relate to other people in a sexualized way. This is This is integral to who we are as humans. And there is so much in the Bible 
that describes this and describes what what happens when when things go wrong and 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 so there's a lot we should talk about there or or social justice is another important biblical truth right the way that we relate to others in society, particularly those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, those who have been kicked to the curb, those who have been uh, 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 the victims of injustice. The prophets of the Old Testament railed on social injustice over and over and over. And so this is deeply important. And because these truths are so important, There's a few things we should do. We should seek biblical clarity on them. What does the Bible say about social justice, about generosity, about prayer, about sexuality, right? So we should seek biblical clarity on them. Um, It means even at our church, New Denver, we're going to often teach about them. We, from time to time, do a series on a topic like this. Or if we're talking about a passage in Scripture that addresses one of these topics, we... We will try to unpack and understand what these topics are about, what the Bible is saying, and the claims that they make on our lives, and then try to conform our lives to them. So we should seek biblical clarity on them. We're going to talk about them at church, oftentimes in sermons, and we should try to live these things out. And sometimes these issues will be disputable matters. As we talked about in the last message, in Romans 14, uh, Paul is addressing this issue of disputable matters, that in the church, there will always be people who will have different levels of conviction about different issues. And sometimes they might see these issues a little differently. Sometimes they might live out these convictions differently. In the church in Rome, there was convictions about what kind of food they should eat, what kind of dietary laws they should follow. If you read further in that passage in Romans 14, there were also questions about which holidays they should they should uh, celebrate, um, which was actually very important. Like, what, what are the rituals that are going to guide our practice as a community of faith? What holidays will we celebrate, and when will we celebrate them? So, so there were all kinds of disputable matters. And sometimes they were connected to these very important matters like sexuality or social justice or, or, or generosity, right? And it's possible that there will be local congregations that will embrace some of these values as being important to their congregation. And so there might be churches local communities of faith that say social justice will be really important to us. And so they're going to guide how we as a church live out our life and they are going to guide how we live out our mission. And so these values might guide us on an individual level and and, and on a local level. But here's an important clarifier. They don't represent the core tenets of the historic Christian faith, what Christians have believed about God for thousands of years. They're not the kinds of things that are found in the Apostles' Creed. Now, they might be connected to things in the Apostles' Creed. There are convictions that we have that might flow out of those tenets, right? When we say the Apostles' Creed, we we regularly talk about how Jesus came and he gave his life on the cross for us. 
And after I say the Apostles' Creed, I might be compelled to live a life of generosity because I am so overwhelmed by the generosity that God showed me when he sent Jesus for me. Uh, our, our understanding of sexuality might flow out of things that we say in the creed, right? Because the creed talks about God being creator of heaven and earth, and we might think about the way God created us as humans. Uh, the Apostles' Creed also talks about the importance of our bodies, that we're not just souls, but we are embodied people. And because we have bodies, our physical bodies, and how we live in those physical bodies, and how we treat those physical bodies is a huge part of our identity, right? And so after I say the creed, those things in the creed might remind me and compel me to take my sexuality seriously, right? As I, as I say in the creed that, 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 that we are one holy Catholic church and, and that we value the communion of saints or, or the fellowship of people, people living together in, in harmony and peace and, and reconciliation. After I say the creed, I might be reminded that I should be someone who is seeking justice and forgiveness and reconciliation, particularly in areas where uh, there's darkness in our world like racism or social injustice, right? So, so some of these values and convictions might flow directly out of some of the tenets of the Apostles' Creed, and a local church might decide that these are going to be some core values that we're going to live out. And yet, what Paul is trying to say in Romans 14 is, if there is another brother or sister in Christ who does not have the same value you do, who does not see this conviction the way you do, has not experienced conviction from the Holy Spirit on this issue in the way you have, and is not living out this value in the way that you are currently trying to live it out, does that mean they're not a Christian? Well, of course not. They're still a brother or sister in Christ. And you need to treat them as such. And that can be really hard for us. I mean, what if they're not very generous with their money? What if I'm really generous with my money and I give a whole lot of money to the church, but they don't give money to the church? Am I going to immediately think, well, they're not a Christian? No, right? Or what if they understand sexuality different than I understand it? What if their interpretation of healthy sexuality or wholeness in our sexuality, what if their interpretation of what the Bible says about that is different than my interpretation of that? Does that mean they're not a Christian? Well, what if I care deeply about social justice and they don't? Or what if we both care about social justice, but their answer to social justice is just being nicer to people, not being a, a racist to other people. But I'm someone who sees that the problem is so much bigger than that. I think there's systemic racism and we have to address that, not just individual racism. That's obvious to me. Maybe it's not obvious to them. Does that mean they're not a Christian? Does that mean they don't affirm the central tenets of the faith? Paul says they are still a brother or sister in Christ. And so we must see them in that way and, and relate to them in that way. And this is where we can, we can get it so wrong. And I see it in, 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 in so many ways. And, and it happens you know, on the right and the left, like in, in sort of more conservative circles and more liberal or progressive circles. 
I've seen people get so focused on this issue of sexuality and, and come to the conclusion, um, a, a, more, a, a more traditional interpretation of the Bible, and, and believe that, that same-sex relationships are not something that is affirmed in the Bible, and uh, come to the conviction that they think those are wrong, and then think anyone who doesn't have that same conviction or anyone who is living contrary to the way they understand sexuality is not even a Christian. And it's almost as if they've come up with a list of the things that they think, A, the things that they think are sins, B, the things that they think are the most important sins, and see the things that they think are the most important sins, and that if you commit one of these, you're not even a Christian. Right? And there's significant problems with that. I mean, the first problem is most of our lists of what's sin and what's not and what's the worst sin and what's not reflect more our own biases than what Jesus would put on his list. I mean, you read Jesus and his teaching, and probably the, the sin that's highest on his list that he condemns more than any other is just pride. Pride and arrogance and selfishness, right? <laughs> right? Jesus, would, Jesus would say, like, if you're prideful or selfish or arrogant, like, that's, that's the biggest thing you need to deal with. Or if you're greedy, right? Maybe Jesus would say, if you're not generous, <laughs> Right? I mean, he, he, he talked with one guy who came to him and said, how do I experience eternal life? And, and this guy was rich. And, and Jesus said, well, the way to experience it is take all you have and sell it and give it to the poor and then follow me. Then you'll experience eternal life. So, so if anyone's drawing lines, if Jesus is drawing lines and boundaries of who's in and who's out, Jesus would say all the people who are wealthy and not giving their stuff away to the poor, they're out. Right? They're not in. They're not the real Christians. Now, of course, I don't think Jesus is saying that. But you see the problem with creating these lists. The biggest problem is our lists don't even reflect Jesus's list usually. And actually, let me correct myself, the biggest problem is the whole idea of a list is not really biblical. There isn't a list of things that if you do these things, you're not a Christian, right? So I see this sort of on the right where we come up with lists and and but I see it on the left too. I, I have a bunch of friends who in our last election um, were so discouraged by the behavior of President Trump and everything he stood for and just uh, how arrogant and prideful and selfish he was and just just so much about his character that was so unbiblical and they were just disgusted by it and probably rightly so, right? And I remember there was one friend um, who said to me, they were so disgusted by this, they said, and I can't believe any Christian would even vote for Trump. In fact, if anyone votes for Trump, I don't even think they're a Christian. That's like, whoa. Now you've taken something that is an important issue Pursuing character, character in leadership, holding leaders accountable to their character, asking the question of the values and character that they're living out, 
the kind of values and character that we want of our leaders and, and, and being very strong and outspoken when they're not. Like all of that is important and very good, but, but then to say anyone who supports that person is not even a... You, now you've taken an important issue, a secondary issue, and moved it to the center. You've made it a, a litmus test. And I say you, I do this too. We all do this. We easily can take these things that are so important. Please understand, generosity is important. Sexuality is important. Systemic racism and injustice, like all of these things are important. Who we vote for is is important, right? All All of these things are important, but we can sometimes take really important issues and move them to the center And now we're worshiping an issue. Now we've made the issue a litmus test. And that's the importance of the Apostles' Creed. It keeps bringing us back into saying the the values that you have and the convictions that you have and the things that you're trying to live out, really good and helpful. Keep pursuing those things. But those aren't the things that unite us. Those aren't the things that we hold at the center of our faith for 2,000 years. So there are debatable theological matters. That's one kind of secondary issue that sometimes we can put in the center in an unhealthy way. There are important biblical truths. That's a second kind of secondary issue that we can put in the center in an unhelpful way. Here's a third bucket and that would be church practices, church practices. Um, Some of these church practices um, are biblical matters, of course, but they're matters where local churches have to adopt a practice, right? They have to live out a certain practice, and so it feels like they're making a decision about this, and they're saying it's important, but it's a practice where we still have to be charitable towards Christians who are adopting a different practice. And these are two, Stephen gave two examples in the last message that that fit into this bucket. Um, Baptism is one. Uh, Some Christians um, uh, believe that it's important to baptize uh, infants. um, And and they understand Uh, baptism as uh, bringing someone into the community of faith. Baptism is almost like circumcision was in the Old Testament, and it's a way of bringing someone into the community of faith. And so they baptize infants. This is a practice that became more dominant in the church in about the third or fourth century uh, for a long time. Um, Other Christians, uh, like the earliest church and and like some of those in the Reformation movement, um, come to the conclusion that that's that's not really how the New Testament talks about baptism. The baptism is more of a willful decision of when someone decides to follow Jesus. And so we're not going to baptize infants. We're going to just baptize people when they get to a place where they can make that decision themselves. Churches have to make decisions about this because they have to embrace a practice. And of course, we've made a decision about that and we have a specific practice. And yet we don't put it at the center we recognize that there's other churches who have adopted a different practice. This is sort of one of those debatable theological matters. 
Um, it's also an important biblical matter. So it certainly fits into the first bucket and the second bucket. But it's a place where we do have to make a decision as a church and live out that practice. Uh, women in leadership is another one, as Stephen mentioned. Uh, some churches um, restrict roles of leadership to just men. Uh, we don't think that's what the Bible teaches. There's all kinds of examples in the Bible of women leading in significant ways. We think there's a few key passages in the Bible that talk about men and women um, in some very cultural ways back then that have been misinterpreted. And so women can lead in, in all levels of leadership at our church, and we have to make a decision about that. And if that's not the way you interpret the Bible and you come to New Denver Church, then you might be uncomfortable and you might need to find a different community of faith. Um, th there's other church practices. Uh, how often we take communion. There's some churches that take communion every single Sunday. Uh, there's other churches that take communion uh, three or four times a year. Um, we're sort of in the middle. We take it once a month at, at our church. The Bible does not, the New Testament never says how often you should take communion. Um, there are examples from the early church where it seems like maybe they took communion or remembered the Lord's Supper every time they gathered. There's other examples that make it seem like it wasn't as often as that. Um, that's a practice we have to make a decision on. So in a sense, we're taking a stand just because we have to live out a practice. But we're also charitable towards other churches that adopt a very different practice. How we do worship, right? Some churches uh, worship and the worship service is way more spontaneous. There's things that happen that are unplanned, right? If you've ever been to a Pentecostal church or a charismatic church, and there's lots of life, and there's a lot of sort of celebration of how the Spirit moves in very spontaneous ways, and it can be really cool. And then there's other churches that are super organized, very liturgical. They're saying prayers and following a structure that has been the same structure that's been followed for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it almost couldn't be more methodical. Well, those two expressions of church, and we're probably somewhere in the middle, uh, uh, maybe a little more towards the methodical side, but not as much as others. But those two expressions of church are decisions that churches have had to make about how they're going to organize their worship service. And there's some places in the New Testament that make it sound like New Testament churches were pretty organized. Paul got on some churches one time and said, you guys are out of control. You need to find a little more organization. And there's other places where it sounds like there were times in the worship service where people just stood up and prayed and did all sorts of stuff. And so you have to make decisions on stuff like that. Um, what about the way you organize leadership in your church? Um, do you have pastors? Do you call them pastors? Do you call them ministers? Do you have elders? What's the role of pastors and elders? How do they work together? Do you have deacons? Um, some churches have what are called deacons. That word is used in the New Testament. How do the deacons and the elders and the pastors relate? Is there a hierarchical structure? Is it like a pyramid with you know sort of a lead pastor at the top? Or is there more a plurality of leadership? How are local churches connected to one another? Do they share leaders? Do they have a bishop in each region that oversees? You know, so... And the New Testament isn't super clear on this. And so different churches and different denominations have made decisions about this. And they have to make decisions about it because it's just one of those practices you have to do. And so in that sense, you do make decisions. You, when you come to our church, 
if you ask us, what do we believe about baptism? We're going to say, here's what we believe. We have to make a decision and it's based on biblical conviction. And at the same time, we're the first to say, but you know what? It's not central. I mean, it's who we are. We have to practice something. But it's not what we affirm as the historic Christian Orthodox faith in the Apostles' Creed that's been handed down and said over and over and over for 2,000 years. And so we hold these things in tension. There are convictions we have. There are important biblical issues we live out. There are some important theological debates that we need to wade into from time to time to understand deeply complex biblical teaching. There are local practices that we have to embrace. How do we do all of those and at the same time say, but let's major on the majors. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Um, I saw this done really well recently. I was talking to a couple in our church, and uh, they've been a part of our church for a while, and um, we were talking about the area of sexuality. And they were asking me what I believed in with regard to a few specific questions, and I was sharing sort of what I believed and what other leaders at our church believed. And it, it was what they thought, because we've talked about it some in some sermons, um, about what it looks like to pursue wholeness um, as sexual beings. And uh, they very candidly said that they interpreted some passages in the Bible a little differently, and, uh, and that this was an important issue to them. And they had thought about it, and they had studied it a lot, and, and they just interpreted some aspects of the way God created us a little differently. And then they said this. They said, this is really important to us, and we love the fact that New Denver doesn't make this a central issue. We love the fact that we talk about this issue, that it's an important issue, that we teach on this issue, that we hold this issue up as something important for us to live out and pursue God's holiness in. And we love that this is a diverse community of faith. That if we share a slightly different conviction in some areas, that we're welcomed and that we're even embraced and that we as a community of faith devalue some diversity And that there's sort of this lack of dogmatism on this issue. In fact, they were able to say they had a higher level of respect for people who come to some slight disagreements on this issue because of the charity we all share towards each other in those disagreements, right? So there's this issue that can be so charged. I mean, sexuality and gender and and marriage, and all those kind of things. It can be so charged, and there's so much debate, and there's so much hostility in, in our world and in our culture right now. And here's an issue where I just loved hearing from this couple that there was this deep respect and this deep sense of charity and this deep sense of we're a part of a community of faith that is trying to keep the main things the main things. And that's not to say we do it perfectly. That's not to say we don't 
stumble in these ways. That's not to say that we haven't at times, I'm sure we have, taken some secondary things and, and, and made them central when they shouldn't have been, or maybe downplayed the importance of some central things. It's such a tension to navigate. But how can we choose to celebrate diversity in the body when we experience it? How can we choose to continue to be charitable towards those who maybe come to different conclusions on secondary issues? And how can we keep the main thing the main thing? Well, we think that's where the Apostles' Creed is the most helpful. And that's why we keep coming back to it over and over and over and over. It's not perfect, but it continues to say, these are the main things. These should be the focus of our faith. These should be the focus of our lives. These are the things that unify us. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, We're about to enter the season of Lent, and uh, I pray that you would continue to be a part of our journey of faith as a community of faith. Thanks for listening.